Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. You might think you know all there is to know about today's guest. Posh girl who once dated Princess Margaret's son. Half of the early noughties style duo Trini and Susanna. Plus a short-lived and strangely identifiable turn on Strictly. Susanna Constantine is a novelist, a writer, a broadcaster with over 25 years experience, She's a hit podcaster, my wardrobe malfunction is an absolute hoot, and on the cusp of 60, Susanna has just written a game-changing memoir that will make you think more than twice about what it really means to be a girl who's brought up in privilege. I would say it's more pathos than being upsetting, and that's genuinely how I am, because I don't, I choose not to look back, I don't blame my parents for anything, I just choose to look up all the positive things they gave me, of which there were so many. And, uh, yeah. Susanna joined me from her swanky kitchen to talk extremely candidly about hitting rock bottom before she could confront her alcoholism, her complicated relationship with her mother, rediscovering her identity after it was ripped away, and how she experienced a mental menopause. Plus, there's strictly humiliation, Dolph Lundgren, and having tea with the Queen. Your podcast is so great. You are so good. I'm not just saying that. Once I started, I didn't want to stop. Actually. Oh, excellent. No, That's it's really, my ears. really great. Really great. You're very good at interviewing. Well, I have got Kristen Scott Thomas envy, I have to say. I know. She was amazing. We well went- done getting her. Who are the babies behind your head? Random babies or your babies? No, that's um, Joe, my son my oldest child they're cute they're great aren't they they're actually taken by you know Robert Maplethorpe photographer yeah by his younger brother who worked with him Edward Maplethorpe and um yeah he took them they are gorgeous 
boyfriend of mine so yeah. yeah useful useful ex-boyfriend mm. on the subject of which Susanna yes Dolph Lundgren what were you thinking I mean I cannot I mean that just his name let's be honest yes. is pure comedy isn't it <laughs> really and I I just well uh, to be honest he pursued me and I was flattered so it's my ego took over absolutely yeah but I mean, you know, sorry, Dolph, but you know what a ridiculous individual, really. But very, very smart, very, very smart. Are you backtracking yeah, rapidly now here? A little bit, but he, <laughs> but yeah, no, that was I, I am. That's the only person who I had a well. It was can only be termed as a fling that I am mortified about, and it's not one that up until writing my book, ready for absolutely nothing, that I um. I love how you got about, that plug in, like really nicely done. That I know it was rather nice, wasn't it? Yeah, it's very yeah. slick. <laughs> That's probably the second most humiliating episode in my life after Strictly. Oh, but Strictly wasn't humiliating. Strictly made us love you. No, you just, all you, no, all you were thinking is, thank God I'm not Susanna. Thank God I'm not Susanna. Be that, honest. That is true. That is yeah, true. Exactly. Because I think that, like, we all love Strictly. It's one of the few, I'm such a snob. It's one of the few of those things that I watch. And I love it. I mean, I love it. I'm obsessed with it. And I think everybody's got a little bit in them that thinks I could do Strictly and I could be turned into somebody who could dance. It's like, I can't sing. I'm tone deaf. I've got no sense of rhythm. It was, without question, the most humiliating, most terrifying thing I've ever done. And I don't know if you ever feel like this, Sam, but it's if, if you're, you're doing something out of your comfort zone and there's one person who you think might be worse than you, it's very encouraging and you yes, can get through yeah. it. But when you realise that you are so way down, far below everybody else, it's like, you know, you just think, well, what's the point? I'm, I am literally going out to humiliate myself. It's not even, you know, maybe I'll do the, the comedy thing. Maybe, I'll, you know, sort of Anne Widdicombe, come the Anne Widdicombe character. I was too frightened to do any of that. And it was it was hideous. But the people were ama- genuinely amazing, all the pro dancers and Anton has become a dear friend and Stacey Dooley is another person who's become a dear friend. And, and so from that perspective, it was amazing. It was like this incredible family. And uh, to watch the whole this whole iconic show come to life was a real privilege. Basically, to paraphrase what you said, basically mm. it would be okay if you could do an Anne come and be the funny one. Mm. But is that how you've kind of navigated your life? No, no, not at all. I know, I think it's more about the opening gambit. When I meet someone new, it's the opening gambit to um, say something outrageous, to break the ice and to somehow be memorable. Um, And especially if it's with someone who I admire. But no, I'm not, I don't play that card I know I can be funny if I need to be, but it's not forced. That's that's sort of natural. I think maybe I kind of rely more on being, you know, the sort of teddy bear that can sometimes maul you. Is probably <laughs> how I would best describe myself. <laughs> that's a brilliant description. Mm. Um, 
I finished the book yesterday and I did absolutely love it. I know you've listened to some episodes and you probably think she says that to everybody. I mean, I was howling with laughter, particularly about Dolph, but also it's so, I mean, it's many things, but actually it's also really revealing and painful. Did you expect that when you started writing it? I didn't find it um, painful to write at all. I didn't find it cathartic. It didn't end up being the book I started out to write, that's for sure. And, you know, I went um, public about being an alcoholic during lockdown because there were so many women suffering. And I thought, okay, let's let's put my hand up and say, you know, I'm there, I'm with you. You're not alone. We're all in this together. You know, people who drink too much, particularly women. And then I got contacted by various publishers. Would I write a book about it? And it got me thinking about my life. And, I, you know, initially I was thinking, oh, there's so much for Trini and I when we were together and what not to wear. And and then I, what I realised, as you know, you'll know because it's in the blurb, but that part of my life, which was so much in the public eye, is actually the least interesting thing about mm. my life. So it wasn't so much painful it was more a a daily barrage of realizations it was like oh my god oh my god that's why it was kind of um a bit like an expedition into who I am without sounding self-indulgent because I, I do go into anecdotes that are very personal um, but then I kind of chuck, chuck them away from myself. So it'll mm. be something about me and then I'll go whoop, off in another direction and, and in a, on a tangent, which you think there is no connection to whatsoever to the, the anecdote, but actually there is. So, um, yeah, it was just, it was really interesting. And I learned so much about myself and about how much we all have in common you know, we mm. all have in common and it, there are these extraordinary anecdotes, but they reveal ordinary truths that we we all experience. So, yes, maybe I gave Dolph a blowjob and he, well, it was a bit more than that, actually, but I gave him a blowjob <laughs> and then went out with him for six weeks or something, went out. And then 10 years later, <laughs> he didn't recognize me. OK, well, that's we've all been there. Come yeah. on, Sam, you've been there. And I'm sorry, my mum's listening to this probably. Yeah. <laughs> Her mom. And so probably, you know, that's, we've all been there, but it just happened to be with Dolph Lundgren, which made it extraordinary. So although there's a very clear narrative going through the book, it it is these kind of mad, crazy anecdotes where my I look back and I think, my God, I am, I'm Forrest Gump. You know, my life has been like Forrest Gump's. It's, it's really interesting you say that because I've actually written that down, that even though, you know, your experience, it would seem extreme in some cases, and obviously you had a very different privileged I'm making like inverted commas marks no but I did let's you know I did have a privilege yeah but it's so identifiable like when you say it's like literally you did have me at page one like when you say about it's an anecdote about a rather ordinary woman who threw herself at at the feet of a man in whose opinion she had absolutely no interest I mean yeah who hasn't done that and gone, gone out with someone because they were flattered to be asked Exactly. And that's what it was. Like I just said previously, you know, he chased me. And so I let him in, literally. Leg spread, let him in. I mean, you you are really clear-eyed about your upbringing and what you were brought up for and kind of, you know, brutal, actually, about your education and the fact that you were 
brought up to be capable of absolutely nothing about it apart from being a wife. Mm. At what point, because you you talk about the patriarchy and initially not knowing what it was and then not even thinking to question it and your mother being like basically trapped in the centre of it. When did you start to kind of think about all this stuff and get a handle on it? When I wrote this book. When you wrote the book, not before. Not before. All I, wow. I, I, think, I think my form of rebellion you know I was too kind of conditioned and too timid as a person to rebel in a traditional way of you know sex drugs and rock and roll but I think my form of rebellion was working because it wasn't what I was expected to do and I found that I got so much out of having a purpose and again, in writing this book, I was thinking, where, where did this come from? And it came from looking after my animals. You know, it came from working in the stable yard with this amazing um, homosexual, alcoholic, manic depressive man, Mick Toulson, who I adored. And he would make me work. And I think, and I, I love that so much. So I think that's, that's where my rebellion went. And, that, and, and it, I didn't realize that, and like I said, until writing this book and then just thinking about my dad, you know, I could have gone to university I, despite a really shit education where we were being molded to become our mothers. I could have gone to university, but my, I remember my father so clearly saying to me, darling, you know, don't be silly. You'd be much better off learning how to make a good beef Wellington quote, unquote. And, um, you know, at the time, I didn't think anything of it. But I look back now, and it's like, Jesus, wow. Yeah, it's like you, it's like, you know, like you say, your dad was really successful and talented businessman. And obviously, you're part of both of your parents. So even if your mother had been happy being a wife, Mm. which she clearly wasn't, you know, you still got an enormous part of your dad in you. And the fact that it didn't even occur to him to transfer any of his skills to encourage any, I mean, it was what was the 60s and 70s. I mean, yeah. I know things have changed exponentially since then. Yeah. But it's crazy. I mean, it, it is crazy. But I think part of it with my dad was that he wasn't in the truest sense an aristocrat. Yes, he, you know, we were wealthy and we had everything we could want, not in terms of you know, luxury or, you know, but we were, we were warm, we were fed, we were looked after. But I think for him, you know, he was very much part of the mercantile class. And um, I think he just wanted his daughters to replicate the path of the true aristocrat. I think that's what it was. And he, but it's funny, like when he died, um, my dad, and, and you know, I love my dad and I had so much respect for him because he had a brilliant mind. He was so artistic and um, had an amazing eye. He was a true aesthetic. But when he died, I found under his um, bed a whole box of every cutting, everything I'd written, every newspaper. But, you know, he, he didn't think to articulate that. And, you know, that was very much part of that kind of just post-Victorian upbringing. So, you know, yeah, there we go. When was your dad born? I don't know. Exactly. Probably about 1930, I think, maybe a bit before. Yeah. So I think also like blokes of that age of all classes weren't exactly Mm. demonstrative, were they, I suppose. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, the book, as obviously your life was, was dominated by your parents and their marriage. Can you tell us a bit more about the the setup? 
their relationship. It was a very codependent marriage, but not in equal parts. So for my dad, my mum was very, very beautiful. And she was a she was the sweetest, kindest, most gentle, loving human being you could ever wish to to meet. But for my dad, she was his greatest trophy. You know, he loved collecting beautiful things and she was his greatest acquisition. So I don't think he I really don't think he ever regarded her how she was feeling or questioned mm. it. Um, but that's the only way he could love her. It would be by giving her things. But at the same time, having her at his side made him feel more significant um, individual to have this beautiful wife. It was something as a businessman, it was important to have at that time in, in the sector he was well, in business, you know, kind of high fluting business at that time. And my mother was basically his unpaid PA. You know, she did everything for him and every day he'd give her a list of things to do. So without that, she would really have had nothing at all. She had her her children. I had a much closer relationship with her than my sister. Your sister's that, older, isn't she? Yeah, she's six years older. But my, my that was her purpose in life. You know, that was her purpose. And, and if she'd been in a different marriage, I don't know whether things would have turned out another way for her because her her illness, you know, being bipolar, overruled everything. It was just so all-consuming. I mean, it didn't really manifest itself severely until I was about 15. Um, but she couldn't function. You know, she could not function. What do you think, I mean, it's impossible to say really, but what do you think came first, alcoholism or the bipolarness? I think depression and bipolar. And then I think she started self-medication because you'd think about then. So let's say my sister remembers more being older and she remembers the kind of lies. And she said my mum was a pathological liar, but it was to get herself out of trouble. So she was Mm. really frightened of confrontation. So it's much easier to lie or to go along, you know, go with the flow or be in agreement. Um, but 50, 25 years ago, she would have been like Bertha Mason and Jane Eyre. She would have been locked away mm. in the attic. She would have been sent to an asylum. And things hadn't moved on so much in the kind of 70s. It was all about you just throw pills at them. My mother didn't have one therapy session, not one, as far as I can remember. Pills were really stigmatized, weren't they? Even even like 10 years ago, let alone then. Yeah. And so my father, you know, as I write, was in complete denial. And my sister was angry. And... I just love to cope. But, you know, I choose not to look at it as a negative thing, having a mother like that, because it was, I I believe, beneficial in in a few ways. You know, it gave me strength. But I think most importantly, it taught me the ability to live in the moment because, which I do, I never look back ever, ever. That's why writing this book was such a surprise to me. (laughs) Um, I never look back. I don't look forward to the point of being irresponsible. I just live now, now, now. And I think that's because that's all I had as a child was the moment I was in. So I didn't know how my mom was going to be the next day. I didn't know what was going to happen the next day. I didn't know she was going to, you know, try and commit suicide or whether she'd be on a high or a low. So it gave me the ability to, yeah, like I said, be totally present. And that that's a gift. That's a real gift to have that. But did it also make you kind of hyper alert? 
Yes. So you're well, s- in the present to the extent that you're like, what's going to happen now? Yes. I mean, I, I'm sure that's where a lot of, you know, I, I suffer from anxiety and I, I'm sure it stems from that. But also on the flip side, I became an observer and to be an observer is, I believe, hugely important as a writer. To go back to your mum and your childhood, did it also turn you into the family fixer? You know, the coper, the watcher. No. I think you use the word watcher, don't you? I was definitely the watcher, but I wasn't the fixer. That was my sister. She was the, she was the fixer. And, um, and then uh, and she was, although we weren't close until much later on because of the age gap, but then there was also, we had this wonderful housekeeper, Mrs. A, who was like my surrogate mother she has been the most important person in my life she's she sadly died last year but without her I don't think I would have had the stability that I did you know she was an extraordinary woman and loving and firm and always there constant so she took away a lot of that feeling the need to have responsibility as a child she she took that away and then my sister was you know she was the angry one she could she could vocalize what she was seeing whereas I internalized what I was seeing how much do you think that what you watched and the way that your your parents interacted so your mum kind of I suppose endlessly trying not to disappoint your dad but being Mm. desperately unhappy how much did you think that impacted on your adult relationship a lot (laughs) I don't I don't think my my mum was always unhappy she was unhappy not so much in her marriage you know she loved my father very much um it was that her illness that made her unhappy and yes my father was a control freak or whatever but because of her I'm a terrible people pleaser you know I'm always trying to keep the status quo I'm terrified of confrontation not with I couldn't give a fuck about people outside and I will you know I will fight till the end with people I don't know but the more I love someone the Mm. less able I am to do that so yeah that's a you know I am in many ways like my mother in my marriage I'm always trying to please and make sure everything's okay and you know, I basically, I need to man up and just get my own bus and get on with it. Woman up. <laughs> yeah, woman up, yeah. Do you think that contributed to your own alcoholism? I don't know, Sam. I mean, I, I really looked at that. I think it's genetic, for sure. I think it's a d- disease that's genetic. And I don't think it did. I think what, again, this is another realisation in the book, is like when... My mum, when we went to Mick Toulson's, this guy who had the stable yard, he was an alcoholic like my mum. But when my mum was there and she had a glass of whiskey in her hand, which she never drank apart from when she was down at the stable yard, she was so happy. You know, she was so happy there. And not just because she was pissed, but she could be herself and she was free and she could drink without being watched. And then Mick was you know, a complete raging alcoholic and he's fucking hilarious, but he was the most brilliant horseman, amazing rider. He could get on any horse and be able to sit without getting dragged along the ground or, you know, without falling. And there were two alcoholics who were 
you know, my mum was loving and warm and kind and there she was happy. And there was Mick, who was, you know, kind of a highly functioning alcoholic. And I think that had quite an impact. And, you know, when I, I started drinking alcoholically, I was functioning really fucking well. I was holding the family together. I was, you know, I had a career, but I was dying inside because it was an all, all an act. You know, it was a 24-hour performance I was giving. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When was it? Was it the Trini and Susanna years or was it after? It was towards the end of the Trini and Susanna years. So not in not in this country, but in we were filming all over the world. And um, it was, I think it was in Sweden. You and Swedes, obviously. <laughs> I know. Hello, the Scandies. <laughs> and yeah, I was, you know, it was bad. It was bad then. And, and Trini being in recovery herself was, you know, she knew how to handle it. And she knew that there was nothing she could say. And I had to come to the realisation myself, but she was like my safety net. I mean, I, I dread to think what would have happened without her. And my husband, my husband was the same too. He, he had the wisdom just to you know to give me the rope to hang myself and um you know so so both trini and steen i have so much to thank them for for being hands off not trying to intervene or um yeah so now i'm you know making daily amends to my children <laughs> to my family yeah my husband to trin i mean yeah, it is. It is what it is. It's nine years ago now, isn't it? Since you, yeah, a bit more. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I did have. I I first went to an AA meeting, and uh, just over ten years ago. In fact, I'd been before with Trini. I'd been to one, and I just I didn't get it. You know, so I knew I knew that this was somewhere that perhaps is where I should be. 
but um, it didn't resonate and I obviously wasn't ready. So I did, yeah, I have been, I haven't had a picked up a drink for seven years, but I did have two spectacular relapses, which were amazing. had so much fun, not for everybody else, but I loved it. And yeah, and I don't miss it at all. And it's, you know, it helps in so many other areas of life and not just for me, but for friends, for my children, you know, the principles of AA are, are so valuable um in in everyday life in the book you describe cc as your watcher which is a really mm. like poignant moment um cc your daughter mm. um were you worried about history repeating itself didn't even cross my mind think about it you know i didn't and that's that's a terrible admission but you know you say you know you mentioned earlier about painful writing it that 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 was the most pain that was painful that part thinking about what I did in particular to Cece because she was at home the most and um you know I can't well then I I know I know how she felt I know what it was like for her because I felt the same and yet I carried on I you know it was like the the selfishness of being an alcoholic is beyond anything you know that is the most important thing is not your family it's not your children it's not your house it's then where the next drink is coming from I mean the only thing I think I never took my eye off was safety you know was safety for the kids safety for the house um keeping people safe but yeah you know it's I didn't give it a second thought what was it that got you through the door of that AA session um well, I hit rock bottom and um, and the time I was in Cornwall with um, my family and Steen's Australian family, you know, the Aussies are notoriously big drinkers. No one was drinking any more than I was, but it was affecting me more because basically my sponge was saturated and I blacked out, fell over, broke two transverse processes in my back and pissed myself in front of my children and Steen's brother-in-law who I sort of vaguely remember helping me up and Steen helping me up. And then I was in so much pain, both emotionally and physically. And the next day, you know, woke up the next morning and everyone was having breakfast. And I just said, you know, I've been lying to you. I'm, I'm drinking secretly. I'm an alcoholic and I need help. And then I asked them all, you know, how has this affected you? You know, I I need to know how this has affected you. I know it's been awful for you. And they all had their, you know, Joe was like my son. He was like, oh, mum, you know, it's fine. And my daughter, Esme, she was like, oh, mum, you know, yeah, you can be a bit embarrassing sometimes. And Cece just went, she was very quiet. And she said, yeah, mum, you need help. help." And Steen said nothing. And then I called a friend of mine in America, um, John Barrett, who's a very good friend of Trini's as well. I actually met through Trini um, and I called him up and uh, and then got back to Sussex the next day and walked into a meeting and that was it. And it was just like the relief. I mean, you know, you know, if you're lucky, you walk in and you get it and it's like coming home. But this book is not about, it's not a misery memoir at all. It's very funny. No. And, and it's not just about alcohol, but, you know, I think, I do think... 
you know, but I'm glad that more and more people are talking about it now because it is, especially if you're functioning, it's a very isolating place to be. And there is a huge amount of comfort to be had in knowing you're not alone. And that's what going to AA meetings does. You are not alone. You're not different. You're not special. You're not, you know, we are all the same. We have a disease. And part of that is disease by drinking too much and putting alcohol over and above everything else and the shame and all that comes with it. Um, and it's just, you know, it's like anything, the relief of knowing you're not alone and there are other people feeling the same way you do is transformative. Like you say, the book is actually really funny. And when I finished it, I emailed your PR and said, oh my God, it's bloody funny. And then afterwards I thought, was that really inappropriate? Because there is actually lots of other stuff, but the overriding impression was that I was mainly howling with laughter. It is that. And I think, yes, there are, you know, like with my mother's illness, looking at that, you know, I mentioned Bertha Mason in Jane Eyre. And that's really gothic, some of that stuff. Yeah, and yeah. which it was, but that's how I treated it. So I didn't go, it's not kind of pull me, pull me. It's just trying to contextualize it and contextualize that illness, you know, the mental issues contextualize it so some of the things are quite funny I would say it's more pathos than being upsetting and that's genuinely how I am because I don't I choose not to look back I don't blame my parents for anything I just choose to look at all the positive things they gave me of which there were so many and uh yeah in the spirit of humor give me a princess Margaret anecdote I love her. Um, I loved her before, but I loved her even more after I finished the book. I mean, she just, she, you know, Princess Margaret came into my life at the right time because my mum was really at the height of her illness um, before she got um, dementia. And um, Princess Margaret was just, you know, her warmth and her empathy and her brilliant mind and her sense of humor and she was I think when you when you your first kind of love in your 20s when you're you're leaving childhood behind and you're you're breaking away from the nest you automatically look for somewhere else to lay your head and mine just happened to be in a bedroom at Princess Margaret's house and so it's almost like you look for another parent that isn't your parent and she became that. But I, I could be so open and honest with her. You know, it just didn't matter at all. So there was this instant in um, every summer she would do these sort of tours around London and we were at the um, Maritime Museum in Greenwich and I we'd had lunch, it was in the middle of lunch and I really needed to have a poo. So I kind of disappeared and I've got been gone for rather a long time because I couldn't get, it sounds so gross, but, you know, I was trying to flush the loo and it wouldn't go down. It wouldn't go down. Oh, anyway, she came, nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, she came to find me and I was sort of still sitting on the loo and she said, Susanna, are you all right? You know, where are you? Bit cross. I'd left the table for so long. And I just said, ma'am, it just, you know, it won't go down. I don't know what to do. And she said, go and get a knife. So off I trotted. <laughs> And um, I found a rather a nice kind of silver cake slice, uh, cake knife. And I thought, okay, that, that'll do. And I put it up my sleeve and I went back and she just took the knife off me, went to the loo and chopped it up. 
with the cake knife so it would go down. And that was her. You know, she was Very so practical. Well, she was so practical. She was so resourceful. She was not embarrassed by anything. And by token, I wasn't embarrassed by anything. So I could tell her anything, knowing I wouldn't be judged. Um, and uh, yeah, I miss her. I really, I miss her. And I feel one of my regrets is that I didn't stay in touch with her because, um, I mean, I didn't feel it was appropriate. And uh, not straightforward, is it really? Not, not straightforward, but she did, you know, having not seen her for three or three to five years when I got engaged to Steen, um, she gave, I hadn't seen her, I hadn't spoken to her. I got a call out of the blue and she'd organised a dinner to celebrate our engagement. I mean, what ex-boyfriend's mother does that? Forget forget it, someone like Princess Margaret. I mean, how yeah. unbelievably generous and loving and incredible is that? You know, she was a fucking great woman. I really, really loved her. Yeah, she just absolutely comes across as amazing. But it's so interesting, isn't it? Because her public image... Mm. and you know public images are invariably entirely wrong mm. was that she was quite well all that although this isn't inconsistent with what you're saying that she just didn't suffer a fool for a nanosecond no she hated yes men she hated sycophants and you know she she could be imperious but she didn't care you know she she knew the people who she could trust and she surrounded herself with the people she could trust and the public perception was different to the person I knew. Um, and, uh, you know, I saw her, I was very lucky to have seen a side to her, which was outside her own children, was incredibly maternal. And I think that is a unique perspective to have had. Okay, before I go on to the questions that I always ask at the end, which I know you will have swatted up on. I, know, I don't think I have, actually, because I felt oh, it a good. lot. I'm not being rude, but I always listen to podcasts when I go to sleep. And then I'm oh, kind of... you fell asleep at the end. I think, Great. I think <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what the questions are. I'll take that as, I don't know. I just, I'll take that. It's just um, honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but first, I want to talk to you about menopause. So in amongst all this stuff was going on. So your mother died, you were in AA, Trini and Susanna had finished. Where was menopause in all this I've got the sun in my face sorry squinting you sure have um menopause I don't I didn't go through any of the physical symptoms of menopause I was very lucky to have had nothing as far as I was aware but I definitely had mental menopause which coincided with the demise of Trini and Susanna and um for sure I think that contributed to my drinking. Um, it certainly, you know, I, I I was very lost. You know, Trini and Susanna wasn't Trini and Susanna anymore. It was Trini and Susanna. You know, we we were always an item. But it happened overnight, pretty much. And that, you know, having spent 15 years being part of a team, part of a duo, you know, it's like it's like losing. You know, it was like a death. Mm. And um, and then the kind of anxiousness. And all of that, but but physically, I had no, um, you know, looking back, I didn't think, oh, it's the menopause. I never once thought that, you know, I've been very fortunate. But menopause hasn't really, it's not something I've given a lot of thought to because I don't believe I've really been through it. I mean, I have clearly because I haven't had my period for fuck knows how long. But um, I don't miss them, do you? Not at all. No, it's like no. Yes. 
I know, not at all. It's such a relief, isn't it? Oh, thank God, yeah. No clitty litter. It's just all, you can wear the same pair of pants the next day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you, it really made me laugh when you talked about the, um, I can't remember how you put it, because I always call it the flesh duvet, and I think you called it like being covered with seven togs of oh of flesh, my. the body changes. God. Like, yes. Oh, man. Oh, and the little pigeon sitting. Yeah, it's like a belt round a duvet. Oh, my God, oh, that photograph. Yes, so, yes, the weight was. But I think also that coincided with stopping drinking and supplementing it with with huge amounts of sugar. Yes, um, because, of course, you're not getting sugar, are you? You're not getting booze, the sugar. So but most people lose weight. Men lose weight when they stop drinking, and women fucking put it on. It's so unfair. Yeah, it's a much mm. lesser way. I had stopped drinking when I got long COVID just because I, I can't drink anymore. Oh, you and poor I thing. Thought I would I thought I would lose loads of weight. No, because I was I suddenly started eating chocolate and I couldn't work out where yeah. that came from. But obviously it came from yes. the lack of sugar. Uh. <laughs> I know. I never and did I'm get biology saying, O level. Uh, you know? <laughs> no, me but well, why am I so huge? Um, but yeah. There are so many stages, aren't there, in, a, in a, a woman and girl's life? So many stages that we have to get through and overcome and move on from. And menopause is hopefully the last. So you were part of a duo. You were Trini and Susanna for mm. such a long time. Who is Susanna? Susanna was the one that people identified with. And I think Trini was the one people aspired to be. Um, you know, and I was always known it was as the fat one, and um, Great. you know, it's the fat, it was like the fat one, which is fine. People always say to me when you know we're doing book signings or something, Oh my god, you're so much smaller in real life. I think I was, you know, I mean, Trini will say this that I was the one with sense of humor, was funnier, maybe. And um, I think that for me, it was. It was less about the clothes and more about the connection, the emotional connection with people. I wasn't really so interested in the clothes, except for the, you know, how they were actually made and whether the zip was placed properly and hidden and whether it was sunray pleats or box pleats. So I looked <laughs> at the sort of the way clothes were made, but I didn't really, yeah, it was much more about making that connection with people. And how is that manifest now? You know, a lot of that time, it was a performance, actually, because I don't think being on television wasn't, I mean, it seemed natural and I was completely, you know, we were both completely ourselves doing that, making that show. But I think that it's like, you know, when you put aside your addiction, you return to the person you were when you first started. And my, you know, I'm an introvert. I'm not someone who likes being surrounded by people. I find it exhausting. I find, mm. you know, for me, I, I have to put on a performance and it's really fucking tiring. And I think that's another reason I probably drank because it's not my natural state. So, you know, the person now is someone who loves solitude, loves isolation, <laughs> hates crowds, doesn't like socialising unless it's in small groups, is, you know, a housewife and a mother living in the countryside, not too worried about her parents, keeping healthy, keeping fit and continuing to overlove people, suffocate people with love. <laughs> <laughs> We're back to the bear. Yeah, we're back to the bear, the teddy bear. Right. What's your emotional age? 
Oh, I would say probably about 18, 16 to 18. Why is that? Because I hate responsibility. I hate being accountable for anything. And I think those are the two main reasons. But I'm learning to you know, try and be a bit more responsible about various things. You know, it, it, I just find it, I hate being accountable. I'd much rather, I'm not someone who takes responsibility. I'd always far rather someone else took responsibility for things. And I might even lean on my children to do that. <laughs> I think sometimes they're more grown up than I am. Give me a book recommendation, a book. It could be something that you've always loved, that's always had an impact on you, or could just be something really good that you read last week. I read and read and read and read and read, and I always have. But the one I really loved was In Extremis, about the life of Marie Colvin, mm. more correspondent with her iPad. That's such a wonderful book. And she was an alcoholic. It is such a wonderful book because it's I love the Middle it? East. I love Israel. I, I love that part of the world so much. So I found that fascinating. And also um, there's a, another one called High Risk by Ben Timberlake. I was blown away by that book. I cannot recommend it highly enough. What advice would you give younger women? Accept the things you can't change. Um, you know, there's no point worrying about things you can't change. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. You know, I, I tell my children, you know, when they get their knickers in a twist about exams or things in the future, I said, look, you know, you might get run over by a bus tomorrow and you're spending the whole of today worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day. It's a waste of time. Who's your old bird role model? I guess Sheila Hancock. I love her and uh, she's just feisty as hell and she surrounds herself by younger people who adore her and she's become something she's so much more than an elderly lady she's a you know she's this huge personality who lives life continues to live life to the full yeah she is amazing what's your superpower empathy hard one Mm. Mm. I think that's my superpower knowing what people are, are thinking and feeling and how many fucks do you give Oh, not very many. I really don't give many fucks at all about most things. But if they concern myself, I don't give a fuck about anything. You know, what you see is what you get. Yeah, but I do give a fuck about this book. And it's the first work thing that I've ever really given a fuck about. That's really good. You just ruined my last extra question, which was going to be, what would the Susanna who was brought up to be not really ready for anything? think about having written this book she'd read it and not realize it's about herself but think it was very entertaining and very funny irrespective of who it's written by she'd be proud of you she'd be very proud of me yeah she would she think you do have a brain <laughs> so do see dad <laughs> see yeah <laughs> thank you Susanna that was brilliant thank you for being so candid Oh, you're amazing, Sam. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Take care, my love. Have a lovely weekend, Sam. And you. Okay. Lots of love. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash the shift.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.